and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 211. For data on web pages, we've already understood there's no such thing as semi-public. You know, this data, it's there and someone's going to be able to put it together. API designers haven't necessarily come to that same realization yet. You know, API endpoints are often designed as if their use follows a contract, uh, but all bets are off once those things are exposed publicly, even if it's just transitively so. In just the last two weeks, three of the world's most prominent social networks have been linked to stories about data leaks. Troves of information on both Facebook and LinkedIn users, hundreds of millions of them, turned up for sale in marketplaces in the cyber underground. Then, earlier this week, a hacker forum published a database purporting to be information on users of the new Clubhouse social network. To hear Facebook, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse speak about it, however, nothing is amiss. All took pains to explain that they were not the victims of a hack, just aggressive scraping of public data on their users. Facebook went so far as to insist that it would not notify some 530 million of its users whose names, phone numbers, birth dates, and other sensitive information were scraped from its site. So which is it? Is scraping the same thing as hacking or just an example of zealous use of a social media platform? And if it isn't considered hacking, should it be? As more and more online platforms open their doors to API or application program interface-based access, what restrictions and security should be attached to the use of those APIs to prevent wanton abuse? To discuss these issues and more, we invited Andrew Sellers into the Security Ledger Studios. Andrew's the chief technology officer at the firm Complex, where he oversees the technology, engineering, data science, and delivery aspects of Complex's technology. He's also an expert in data scraping with specific expertise in large-scale heterogeneous network design, deep web data extraction, and data theory. While the recent incidents affecting LinkedIn, Facebook, and Clubhouse may not technically qualify as hacks, Andrew told me, they do raise troubling questions about data security and data management practices at large social media networks. And they beg the question of whether more needs to be done to regulate the storage and retention of data on these platforms. To start off our conversation, I asked Andrew to tell us a bit about the work that he does at Complex. My name is Andrew Sellers. I'm the Chief Technology Officer and a co-founder at Complex. Andrew, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Paul, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Tell us just a little bit about what Complex does and the work that you do there. Sure. So at Complex, we build risk management products. And so for me specifically, I um, oversee the, the product uh, development and delivery aspects. And we, we effectively help our customers make better decisions with their data. That's what our products do, to, to give better visibility and insight of what's happening in their enterprises from a cybersecurity perspective. And we help with some risk transfer as well through, through insurance. And so a, a unified means to, to, analyze, to analyze risk and to uh, you know, find mitigation strategies. We have you in this week because one of the things that we've seen recently is just a real growth in the frequency of API-based attacks on you know, cloud-based applications and infrastructure. And we had like a trio of them just in the last few weeks with news of uh, you know, a, a data leak from of Facebook data and then another uh, from LinkedIn. I think they were both like 500 million users each. And then Clubhouse. So I thought I'd have you in sort of ask you, like, what's going on with this? What is behind this trend of 
I don't know, the companies don't call them data leaks. So I guess one question would be, are they in fact data leaks? And, and what, what's causing them here? What is, the, uh, what is the, con- the through line or the thread in these attacks? Really interesting question. So all the companies you mentioned have uh, effectively given the same answer to, to that question, that these incidences, are, they're not data breaches and that we should think of them, you know, as something else. And, you know, that's not particularly satisfying, I have to say, as someone who does this, because certainly I wouldn't want my data out there. And I'm sure there are yeah. millions of, hundreds of millions of people that agree. You know, we often think of data breaches as unauthorized access to data, whereas these are these are something else. It's more like unintended access to data. But I don't know if yep. you knew this about me. I got my start, uh, you know, years ago as an academic researcher in web scraping. So, you know, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I think there's... One of, the, one of the reasons I reached out to you. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad. Well, so, yeah, if you indulge me just for just a quick aside, I, you know, I think there's a strong and recent precedent that's instructive here in, in answering that question. And, and you know, what's happening now with, with APIs, I think, is undergoing a similar evolution to what we saw with web scraping several years ago. You know, we as a community used to have this characterization called the deep web, which was meant to describe those web pages that bots didn't crawl. You know, over time, that's been de-emphasized as a term because content that wasn't indexable, index, you know, wasn't really useful um, as the web got bigger. You know, researchers and thought leaders, they put a lot of time and effort into movements like semantic web. Uh, but it was all premised on having content providers extensively annotate and expose their data. It didn't really happen like that, but Skip Graham and similar NLP advancements with machine learning automated data contextualization at this incredible and largely unexpected rate. You know, and, and beyond that, the technology for impersonating human users in accessing web applications became far more commoditized. And so as a result of that technological improvement, kind of that confluence of factors, web content providers really had to rethink how they were exposing their data. You know, the, the, the idea of the deep web was gone. You know, web content providers just accepted that. And more and more, they were exposing their entire sites to search engines. You know, so for a while now, for data on web pages, we've already understood there's no such thing as semi-public. You know, this data, it's there, and someone's going to be able to put it together. API designers haven't necessarily come to that same realization yet as a community of practice. You know, API endpoints are often designed as if their use follows a contract, uh, but all bets are off once those things are exposed publicly, even if it's just transitively so. You know, RESTful APIs, as you know, are a foundational element of most design patterns for modern data intensive applications. So the landscape for tooling uh, that discovers them and surreptitiously enumerates them, well, you know, that's been commoditized as well. I mean, that's exactly like what we saw with web scraping. You know, and companies that have to walk this tight line of very unsavory options when it comes to APIs and their exposure. You either gate or throttle them in some way, or you invest in some kind of rate or source limiting technology while still trying to, you know, build competitive data rich experiences that the, the customers expect and still like to use. You know, it's a hard problem too, because people that scrape APIs can leverage pools of IPs. You know, even residential IP blocks can be proxied as a commodity now. There's a big industry in that and all that grew out of web scraping and now it's being kind of repurposed for API scraping. And so, you know, finding suspicious or unwanted access patterns, it's just not trivial at all. Everyone's probably thinking like, well, web pages are powered by RESTful APIs. Isn't this all the same thing? Well, indeed, you know, modern web pages are, are dynamically built from API calls. So the, the two aren't really distinguishable in a technical sense, you know, but I do think that for developer and product management expectations, they really are different. And so said differently, you know, I think everyone is, is you know, the whole point of that long answer was that, you know, to summarize, everyone understands something's public when it's on a web page, 
but that same understanding isn't necessarily that widespread when it's abstracted and, you know, say a headless application where parties are passing JSON payloads back and forth. And so it's, it's not even the technology has changed as much as the expectations of, you know, I don't, I, I, people need to start thinking about their APIs the way they think about what's on their web pages. And I think that's, in that sense can help us, you know, rationalize the, should we think of these as data breaches? Because we need to get there. We either need to accept that this information is totally public and totally out there, which I don't think we have. I don't think that, I don't think that yeah. discourse has yeah. happened yet. I don't think, I don't think that debate's been settled. No. Um, but you know, if, if not, then yeah, we need to secure this stuff. And then these things probably are data breaches, you know, unintended, you know, isn't all that different from unauthorized. Yeah. I don't think most people accept like, well, everything you put on Facebook is public data. And it's like, well, exactly. That's right. That's right. I I don't, I don't think most people would say that despite, you know, the TOS is a 50 pages of stuff they click through. You know, that's, (laughs) I mean, it's it's a multifaceted problem. Yeah. 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 There is the consent issue as well, but that's a, that's probably a discussion for a different day. Give us a sense. And I know you weren't, you know, obviously on the inside here and you're, you know, you're not working with any of these, these um, uh, social media companies, but when we're talking about scraping data on 500 million people, I mean, I sort of, at, at first glance, I would say, well, how are they even able to do that for just the reasons you mentioned, like rate limiting? And, you know, you'd imagine that obviously companies like Facebook and and LinkedIn um, have very sophisticated um, tools and detections for that type of uh, automated behavior. So practically, what's your sense on how they how they were able to even carry out this attack. A couple of points there. As you say, I don't know exactly what happened here. This, as I said before, is a tricky problem. Again, we have almost the web scraping industry to thank for this and that um, a lot of the tools that that do this and allow them to surreptitiously mine these things and to do it from multiple places, you know, has become really commoditized. And so, you know, accessing, you know, knowing that these are the same people each time are, you know, it's, it's, it's harder than you think if they're being smart about it. But my understanding of some of this is it wasn't even that smart. Um, you know, I think that there was, you know, one of these that you mentioned was, you know, it was a contact manager API call or something. There was an endpoint where yeah, I use one of my address book and uh, it returns their their contact info or something. Yeah. And, you know, what what someone did was they actually built a, an address book with every conceivable phone number and, you know, was able to mine a lot that way. I mean, that that does seem like someone was asleep at the wheel there. Um, you know, if this guy really likes phone numbers. Uh, yeah, well, it, it's been interesting to just because it would have been trivial to say like, you know, hey, no one knows more than 10,000 people or something. And, you know, and again, but but that can be decomposed as well. And it's, you know, if, I, if I'm able to have a big residential IP block, just have no intersection between my phone books and, and effectively accomplish the same thing. So, you know, I mean, it, it is actually a hard problem. So I'm not going to be too critical there because I just don't know enough to, to, to really say. But um, these companies weren't necessarily incentivized to protect this data either. And that's you know, in, in a sense, probably the bigger problem. I mean, we've been saying this for years, but if you look at the numbers and the and the fines that have been issued and so on, there there clearly is not a huge financial disincentive for being you know loose and wild with your data, with your with your customers' data or users' data. I mean, in some ways, we're in this golden age of data products right now, and so their yeah. entire business model, certainly the three companies you mentioned, it's really been built around monetizing us, yeah. our identities, and our yeah. relationships. Yeah. And so I, I don't think they're going to change unless they're made to do so. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't speak for them, but if you look at their priorities based on these statements that they've made, they, they're not, there's no acknowledgement they even did anything wrong. So I think that's the bigger issue, actually, because, again, it's, it's certainly like, as we said before, the technology, it's a hard problem to, to prevent some of this. But what's worse to me is that we as a society haven't decided that it's important that they need to, because I absolutely believe Facebook could solve this problem if it, if it wanted to. 
So we're talking about these three big social media networks, uh, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Clubhouse. But what are the implications of this on the broader kind of enterprise space, I would say, in terms of, you know, their increasing use of web-based services, APIs? Is this something that impacts them as well? I think it impacts almost everyone that uses APIs. I mean, as I said before, um, you know, RESTful APIs are a foundational element in, you know, d- the design patterns of almost everything I know for, for you know, cloud-based data-intensive applications. I mean, so it, this is something that I think that that reckoning is coming. And so, you know, as far as how companies need to think about it, then, you know, API data needs to be thought of more like the community thinks about web data and that it's just kind of always exposed. And so it's no longer reasonable to consider data as sensitive only when it's aggregated. You know, you've got to assume that someone's going to put it all together. So, you know, sharing a phone number with a connection has to be considered in the light of what happens when all the phone numbers are known by anyone. You know, I, I mean, I have a military background, so maybe I always think of this with a little bit of bias, but I do think companies need to adopt a more military-like approach considering how they classify the sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Data. You know, individual records need to be handled and exposed very deliberately. And I do think that, you know, lawmakers are catching up here, you know, GDPR and CCPA have really shaped the thinking here. I mean, in fact, like even with the company's responses to some of these breaches, some of them talk about like, oh, that was pre-GDPR, that was 2019, it was a long time ago. I mean, that's a little disingenuous because it's like 2019 was not a long time ago, but but certainly the thinking here has begun to change. And so I, I, I actually do find that bit of it a bit encouraging, but, um, you know, I still think we have a, we have a long way to go. You know, identity matters a lot here. And so, you know, validating API requests are coming from where they're supposed to be coming from yeah. is a significant part of this. And so, you know, making sure that companies use a, a um, an appropriate kind of, you know, framework with tokens or, you know, that they're actually controlling identity is incredibly important. Granular access is important. You don't want to, you don't want them to be any more wide open than they have to be, um, you know, and I mean, I even think there's an argument and this is probably a good time to have that conversation that companies need to consider how much of this they really need to be collecting anyway. Yeah. You know, and it's very highly antithetical to the conventional thinking here. But, you know, before, you know, regulations or consequences, there's there's just without that, there's no thought to rationalizing the value of keeping data for most firms. And that's kind of what they think now is like, well, the more data, the better. I just vacuum it up and I keep it forever. But, you know, it should be a burden to handle this data responsibly and there should be accountability when it's not. Um, and, you know, I don't think we're there yet as a society with that that reckoning, but it's probably coming. Yeah, and there have certainly been been papers written and and uh, and God knows medium posts on the kind of the <laughs> the on the cost of data of of holding on to all that data, right? The sort of the toxic spill kind of analogy. But companies do not seem to have the same attitude about the data that they're collecting and storing, even if they don't have a specific short term or even long term goal for it, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I th- and I think that that rationalization is really important. And I think that, you know, this is where governments can help with a nudge. Because uh, yeah. it's it won't, I don't believe it'll happen any other way. Yeah. Do, within organizations, I mean, you talk about kind of, you know, more attention being paid when the APIs are, are created. Like, how, like, how does that work practically within organization, an organization like Facebook or LinkedIn? Are, are the groups managing the security of user accounts and data security on that side is that is that maybe a different group than the one that is designing APIs for to to promote you know developer interactions with their platform you know i'll say in general um, you know that kind of organizational focus can be a problem if if things get too siloed and bifurcated 
Yeah. Uh, I think there are things that organizations can do to access their spo- exposure to API-based attacks. More and more, I mean, I think this is going to clearly be one of the in vogue kind of attack vectors, you know, for the near future. So yeah. it's probably good for companies to do that now. Um, yeah. And there are things that they can do. I mean, you know, vendors can help a little bit with the scanning if there's like vulnerability scanning that one can do. But, you know, one thing I'll say is that this is the kinds of ways these things can be exploited or are new enough and there's still elements of creativity. It hasn't all been automated yet. And so, you know, pen testing, I think, remains absolutely critical here. I mean, more than in many other places, you know, the tooling just isn't reliable enough to, to do this yet without an expert getting in there and poking and finding out what they get and finding out what this kind of response yields this kind of payload and, you know, how else that can be tweaked to, to yield this other kind of payload that's more valuable. Um, you know, ironically, I think there's a lot of things that, that, that companies are doing that um, can can be counterproductive to API security. I think zero trust architectures will probably make this problem worse before it makes it better. Oh, interesting. You know, a lot of API security, right or wrong, right now relies on origin. Mm-hmm. And you know, firewalls today are the main control protecting, you know, a lot of API access anyway. You know, and, and many just weren't designed to be public facing. And so many aren't going to be ready yet with the understanding necessary to under, to craft the business logic in such a way that data is protected even when API endpoints are, are, are facing more and more exposure. And, and again, as I said, the tooling is just getting better and better on the other side to, to discover and enumerate these API endpoints. You know, token management and APIs, it's a really hard problem. Um, you know, and so, so what companies, if they, if, to do one thing, like it would be to make the right investment applying in an appropriate security architecture. So, you know, like an API gateway or a service mesh, you know, some kind of approach that standardizes the operation and access patterns for APIs. So you don't have individual developers, you know, making security decisions uh, in a bespoke way every time right. for every API endpoint, because then, you know, then that's how mistakes get made. And you-, it, you know, you, you talked about maybe the need for, for a nudge. Uh, on the other hand, we don't want to use regulations to mandate certain technology solutions. So I guess w- what would be the proper way to create that nudge, you know, to, to kind of create that incentive to adopt security best practices around APIs? And Yeah, I mean, so it's a tough question. It, you know, I think it's, it's a consistent theme in history that our ability to innovate with technology rapidly outpaces our ability to reason about its responsibility use. <laughs> Let alone pass laws about it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like law, legs, but you know, I think lawmakers first need to better rationalize what protections consumers need here and action accordingly. I think a lot of it is a first step. Can start with transparency. Um, you know that. I, I think if you ask most people, like, are you okay with the information that Clubhouse disclosed? Like, here's who all of your friends are, which is you know effectively what that one was. Or are you would you be okay with that? Would you have signed up for it? Um, you know, I think, I think that kind of thing is, is a useful first step. You know, like I'm not really, the problem is, is that end users really aren't empowered here. You, you either, you either have to accept this huge invasion of privacy or you don't use the products. Um, and so this is why, you know, government's really kind of the only thing that can say, like, you need to disclose what you're collecting and, and what its use is. And, and, and to be honest, there probably needs to be, um, you know, some accountability in some way for, for how this is done. And, you know, that, that's a tough thing. Like, I don't, I don't have the answer for that. We're not going to, we're not going to solve that in this podcast, but I think there is a, there is, you know, clearly disclosing the, you know, metadata for 500 million people is, is not okay. And so there should be some consequence for that. And, and looking into, you know, how those lines are drawn is, is something that you really need, you know, 
smart people to, to really commit some time and resourcing to, to, to really have a real discussion about. But unfortunately, that, that just it's not going to be a, a quicker answer than that, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Final question. Um, you know, people might kind of shrug and say, oh, you know, whatever. So they, you know, the bad guys know my, you know, clubhouse network or my Facebook, uh, you know, uh, social graph um, and, and be kind of blase about it. But um, what do we know about how uh, malicious adversaries, whether cyber criminal nation state uh, might leverage this information uh, once they have it? No, I mean, again, Paul, and it's interesting. I always get surprised too when people say that, because again, like these companies with their you know, multi-billion, hundreds of billions of dollar market caps, they were built where the main asset is this metadata. And so, of course, it's valuable. And the sky's the limit. Um, you know, the relationship metadata in, in particular is, is hugely valuable because it it can empower, you know, more effective spear phishing. Mm-hmm. Um, it can enable identity theft. And then, um, you know, we, we've already know that nation states use this kind of data in like InfoOps campaigns. And so, um, you know, the data itself obviously has a market value inherently. That's why these things get like packaged together and enriched and sold on the dark web. I mean, it's it's really scary, to be honest, how, how much potential there is. It's, it's incredibly valuable. And this is why, uh, you know, we can't be dismissive of the impact that these kinds of disclosures, I guess we won't call them breaches, but, it, you know, uncontroversially, what kinds of impacts these disclosures have. Yeah. And in fact, I think we, we've there's been suggestions, in fact, that the recent kind of exchange uh, attacks were, were furthered potentially, which are, you know, kind of nation state uh, furthered potentially by data taken in, in previous breaches, whether that was healthcare providers and so on, that, that this this data is out there and being used as a foundation for more sophisticated attacks. I, I think you're exactly right. That's a great yeah. point. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Andrew Sellers, Complex, thanks for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Paul, thanks for the thanks. It was just my pleasure. Thanks so much. Andrew Sellers is the Chief Technology Officer at Complex. He was here to talk to us about the recent leaks of data on hundreds of millions of users of LinkedIn, Facebook, as well as the new social media network, Clubhouse. 